says this. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's just pray. Pray for Tony as well. Uh, Let's just bow our heads, shall we? Just pray. (coughs) Father, thank you so much for your word, Lord. We thank you that we can read it and that you can give us understanding of it. And that's what we pray for, Lord. As we pray here, we think of our brother Tony in hospital, Lord. Father, his life has and it will change dramatically when he comes out of hospital. We thank you for the joy that's in his heart. We thank you for the confidence he has in you. We thank you for what a witness he is at that age, witnessing to the power and the grace of God. Thank you, Lord. We pray now, Father, that as he comes home soon, we pray that you will prepare everything that he needs, Lord. May the transition from being an able-bodied man to being a disabled man, Lord, may that transition, Lord, for him be smooth forever as you work in his life. Pray too for Clive as he cares for his dad, that, Lord, you will just bless them both. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One other note, just to let you know, on the 23rd of June, after the morning service, on the 23rd of June, we're going for a picnic as a church over to the park, local park. So if you want to put it in your diary, you bring your lunch. Um, if this weather is nice and bright, we'll definitely be going out to, um, to the park and enjoy that. And rounders and football and all other stuff that we'll be doing over there. Uh, you're very welcome to come on that day, 23rd of June. Just put it in your diary. Well, um, last week you may be reminded that we, I spoke on uh, 1 John 1.9. I was so glad to hear that some of you have set your hearts to learn that verse. 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unright. Some of you have gone out and you've learned that. That's really, really encouraging. Um, this morning... My title of my message is this, a difficult subject, a difficult subject. Remember that I said, um, and and John pointed out when he preached, God is, what is that? God is light. That's what the Bible says in 1 John, God is light. I remember I took my family out to see that, that, that film called The Endgame. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, it's three hours long. So um, I went out there and I went loaded with food. Three hours long sitting in a theatre, I went I had crisps, I had chocolate, I had drink, I had popcorn. And I sat there for three hours um, making sure I enjoyed the film, but making sure I enjoyed the food as well. When I came out of that... My kids looked at me and there was chocolate all over my big fat stomach, crisp over my beard and stuff. And they, Dad, you're a disgrace. Because I came out 
the picture out of the dark into the light and it exposed what a greedy animal I can be in the cinema. Coming into the light is often a good thing because it shows clearly things up. It shows things what we really are. So coming into the light was good and is good. And John says, God is light. But there was a problem in John's day. And I want to show you this problem this morning. So my first um, heading is facing sin. Look what it says in that verse. We're going to be staying in this verse quite a lot throughout our message. This one verse here. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. You see, in John's day, John's letter here, 1 John, John speaks about parallels, light and darkness, truth and error. He speaks on parallels throughout his letter. And here in this verse, there was an error creeping into the church. There was an error coming in. People in John's day were saying, We have not sinned. And the reason why they were saying that was because they were Gnostics. You see, Gnostics believe, and their message was, that the spirit is all good. The spirit of a man, of a woman, is perfect. And the flesh, the body, well, that was horrible. It was no good. They believe that the body, you can treat it harshly if you wanted to. The body, you can give it over to sin if you want to. You can sin as much as you want in the body. It matters not. You can take drugs. You can um, use it for sexual immorality. You can get drunk in the body. They taught that the body is nothing, but the spirit is everything. That's what Gnostics believe. And so, when they referred to the body, they would say to the church, and it was teaching the church in John's day, they was teaching, listen, your spirit is important, your body is nothing, so go ahead and do whatever you want in the body. You will not sin. That was the message. Now, the question really is, you know, is that true today? Do we have that same message? Well, we don't really have that same message today But what we do have is that sin is being redefined in our society. Sin is being redefined. You see, 70 years ago or so, you would not have a man living with a woman as if they were married. You would not have that. That was taboo. That wouldn't happen about 70, 80 years ago. But now, if that is happening, then people will just turn around and say, well, that's normal. But what's happening now? Because now we have allowed that to slip by and that's going on. Now we have a man living with a man as though they were married, husband and wife. You have a woman living with a woman and they say, we need to redefine marriage. That that is a legitimate relationship. That should be a relationship that the law should recognize. And so therefore, now, sin has become more normalized. 
What the Bible said, and like what Grant was praying, the standards and the boundaries that God has set in his word have now been moved and pushed right out. For now, not only do we say that living together, a man and a wife, a man and a woman living as a man and wife is okay, we have had to open the door really wide and say that a man and a man living together in a home as a married couple is absolutely fine. I um, was reading the story of a, of a man who had a sex change. He was born as a man. He had a sex change to become a woman. A few months later on, he was so unhappy. He was so disturbed in his thinking, in his life, that he went back to the hospital, back to the doctor, and said, make me back into a man. Change me back. That's a true story. You know, our children today are being taught that their sexuality is fluid. You can change your sexuality. Our children are being taught that if I was recorded on TV preaching this message today, I would be in court myself. Because the standard of God has changed. So although now we may not say, like the Gnostics say, that your spirit is wonderful, the flesh is is nothing. We may not say that, but in practice, sin has been redefined. Now, when you challenge a man on the street like that, you go to to Loughton High Road and you challenge a man on the street, he will look at you as if you're mad. What? You mean I can't be with my, my boyfriend? I can't see him as my husband? My, I can't you know, marry the same sex? They will think that we are archaic, that we are mad. But this is where our society is at at the moment. Some of you may remember the London riots. We had London riots a few years ago. And during the riots, people were smashing glass windows, going in, stealing televisions and computers and running amok in London. When the police finally got law and order and arrested so many of the people who were stealing, some of them said, some of them had decent jobs, some of them were lawyers and some of them were students, some of them were studying degrees. And when the police finally arrested them and said, why did you do it? The answer was this, everyone else was doing it. The windows were smashed down. I saw everyone running out with TVs and computers. So I decided to do it as well. That's where our society is. But here's the problem. The problem not so much with what's going on in society, what's happening in the church. And I want to tell you, the problem is this. How many child abusers do we have in the church? How many practicing homosexuals today in England and in America are standing where I'm standing and preaching a word of God? How many? How many pastors and vicars don't even believe in God? I was reading a story about a woman in Australia and, and she came out and said, I'm a pastor of a church, but guess what? I don't believe in God. How many of these crazy stuff do we have? Men and women in the church just hungry for money, 
hungry for power, and yet have no regard for God. And these people will say, I have not sinned. And this arrogance can seep down from the top. This arrogance... I have not sinned. I can preach to you and be greedy for money. I can preach to you and be greedy for sex. I can preach to you and be a homosexual. But these things I can do. And this arrogance can seep down into the church so that you and me begin to compare ourselves, not with Christ, but we compare ourselves with other people. But if we go down this route, if we go down this route, John is writing to this church and he said, if you go down this route, look what John says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. Can you believe that? If you claim to be without sin, like these Gnostics were, and like people in our society are doing, you are calling God a liar. Well, why are you calling God a liar? Well, God says different. This is what God says. God turns around and he says this. Let's get the verse up there. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. God saw that. The Bible says that God looks and he says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart is evil and wicked. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul writes, it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And by turning around and saying that I have not sinned, I can do what I like, I can live how I please. I'm okay. I don't sin. If we say that, you're looking God in the face and you're saying to God, you are a liar. And the Bible turns around and says this. God is not a man. He's not human like us. Doesn't blow hot and cold. Doesn't change his mind every now and again. As Grant says, he's the same. God is not a man that he should lie. And so John goes on to turn around and, and, and he, he opens this up further. So let's go back to that verse again. So if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And then he adds something else just on the end. And his word is not in us. There's so much I can say. When I was preparing this, there's so much I can say about the word. In this book is the promises of God. In this book, there's hope, there's power, there's deliverance. In this book, God's word, when it resides in your life, when it resides in your heart, it brings forth life and power and peace and comfort. When God's word comes in you, it does all these things. But John said, if we call God a liar, his word has no place in our hearts, in our lives. But there's even far worse than that. Because the Bible tells me that Jesus is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He 
that is Jesus was with God in the beginning. Again, Hebrews turned around and says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, to the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken by his son. Jesus is the final word from God. He is the word of God. And if you claim that you have no sin, then the Bible says Jesus has no place in your life. Whatever else you may have, you may be a member of a church for 50 years. You may stand in a pulpit and preach like I am doing. You might go out into the mission field and serve missionaries, even like some of our young people are going to do over in Europe. You can do all these things, but if you do not have the word of Christ dwelling in you, if you do not have Jesus in your life, then all of these things count for nothing. In fact, listen to what Jesus says to a group of people who thought they were in church who thought they had a relationship with God. Look what Jesus said to them in Matthew 25. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Members of churches will hear that. Preachers will hear that. Missionaries will hear that. Those who do not have Christ, in their lives, will hear those words. And that's what John is, 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 is bringing out, it's what John is, is making clear, if we claim to be without sin. Facing sin is a difficult subject. Nobody wants to preach about sin. I don't really want to preach about sin. But here it is. One John is making it very clear. Facing sin. But the second thing I want to say, and the final thing I want to say, is freedom from sin. Freedom from sin. So listen to this verse here. We go back down to chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. John has been talking about sin. As I said, a very uncomfortable subject, a very difficult subject. Is he now, in this verse, is he expecting them to live completely pure lives? Is he expecting them to live lives free from sin? When he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Absolutely not. If I were to tell you that John in this verse is saying to you that you can live a life when you're freed from sin in this life, I will be teaching wrongly. That would not be true. Going back a few hundred years ago in the 18th century, there was a movement called the Holiness Movement. Now that movement came about by some good men. John Wesley was one of the men who brought this movement in. And, and what this Teaching said, it said this, that you can live a life completely free of sin. That's what the movement says. You can live a life now totally and completely free of sin. 
And so you can have one week where you didn't sin at all. And two weeks where you haven't sinned what? And even a month you haven't sinned. Completely, totally freed from sin. It's a bit like somebody who um, is on a diet and try to stop eating chocolate and they make it for one week. And they say, wow, I haven't touched chocolate for one week. And they go on for a month. And they say, wow, I haven't done it for a month. Well, that's what's the sort of thing these people were teaching. That you can go through your life without sinning. Well, according to John, this was not true. Every, when he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin, what he means is this. What he's saying is this. That every Christian's goal should be that they do not sin. Every Christian should have a strong desire, a strong hope in their hearts that they do not sin. They don't wish to sin. They do not want to sin. They long to be like Christ. That desire should be in every single Christian. And every Christian should always know that even though they cannot achieve it here, one day they will. And John points out to that. Look what John says in his letter here. He says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. When Christ appears. What, what is Christ like? Well he's perfect. He's holy. He's spotless. Look at me now. I've got all this sin and, and wickedness in my life. And I can't get rid of it. But one day when I see Christ. I will be like him. That's what John is pointing to. That you will be like him one day when you see him. But what about now? It's okay to say that one day I'll be like Jesus, but I've got to deal with sin today. I've got to deal with my failures today. What do I do? Well, this problem has been in the Old Testament, not only in the New Testament, it's been in the Old Testament as well. Let me show you where it is at the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel, there was a man called Eli. And Eli had two sons. And these two sons were wicked. These two sons were sleeping with women that were not their wives. These two sons were coming into the church, into the temple, and desecrating the temple. They were doing evil things. And so their father, Eli, took them to one side and spoke to them. And this is what he said. He said this. If a man sins against another man, a judge shall judge him. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? If a man judges, if a man sins against another man, then the judge will sort it all out. But if a man sins against the Lord... Who will intercede? I was in a gym just the other week, not this week, the last week. I was in the gym and I met this guy. 
and I, was, I knew, knew him for some time back, and, and we was chatting, we was talking, he said to me, I'm going through a divorce. And I, and I knew when he had his children, when he was being born, he'd been married for 10 years, and he had three little girls. And um, I was very sad to hear that. He said, I'm going through a divorce, he said, and you know, it's going to cost me 30,000 pounds to get the dispute sorted out between me and my wife. I have to pay 30,000 pounds to the solicitors and courts, and she has to pay 30,000 pounds to the solicitors and courts. I wanted to say, can't you two sort it out? In fact, I did say that to him. If you sin against one another, then the courts are there to sort it out. But what if you sin against God? Listen to what David said after David committed adultery and murder. Look what David said. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justify when you judge. Against you, yes, I murdered a man. Yes, I slept with a woman. But that was awful and it was sinful. But David turned around and said, Lord, you have I sinned against. And when you sin, my dear friends, you sin against God. Job, in the book of Job, he had a dispute with God. He wanted answers. He came before God and and he wants to come before God and he wants to plead his case before God. And so he writes and he says these words in Job chapter 9. Look what he says. About God. God is not a mere mortal or man like me, that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. And then he cries these words If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. If there was only someone who put a hand upon God and put a hand upon me and bring us together, that was Job's cry. If only there was somebody to mediate. Well, in the New Testament, John has an answer. And when he writes in 1 John chapter 2, he says this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We had someone, says John, we had someone who would take his hand and place it upon me. We had someone who would take his hand and place it upon God. Someone who will mediate. Someone who will arbitrate. Someone who will go between me and God. And that is Jesus Christ. And what John is saying here is today is that this. There is one who can touch God. Can you believe that? The almighty God. The one who is holy. The one who dwells in in light, inaccessible. The one who is pure beyond all measure. There is someone who can lay his hand upon God. I like John in the in, in the Revelation, do you remember when, he, um, when they said um, there was no one to open the scroll? And John said there was no one. And I cried, I wept, and I wept. Because there was no one worthy to find to open the scroll. And then someone came and approached the throne. 
was one like a lamb that had been slain. And he approached the throne and he took the scroll from the hand of God. Who was that one? Jesus Christ, the advocate. And he can put one hand upon God and one hand upon you. And he could mediate. Now it says there in God, and as I close, I close with his final words. How does Jesus do this? You know, I haven't been to court much in my life. I remember being in court to be a character reference for different people. But do you know when you go into court, there's certain things you must and you mustn't do? You must address the magistrate or the judge in a particular way. You must speak up so that you are heard when you're spoken to. You have to stand when the judge calls you to stand. There's certain things you've got to do in court. That is why most people need someone else to mediate. They need someone else to be their advocate. They need someone else to speak on their behalf. Because they don't know the system in the court. They don't know how to address the judge. They don't know how to speak to him. They don't know how to approach the bench. They have to sit down and allow someone else to do all the talking for them. But I want to tell you this morning. Jesus stands before God and does all the talking on your defense. Praise be to God. Well, how does he do the talking? What does he do when he comes before God? Well, John again tells us, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. He is the atoning sacrifice. He stands before God. And he shows God his wounds. Look at the nails. Look at the scars. I'm standing here as an advocate for the men and the women in Golding's church. The men and the women who sin daily. The men and the women who have a desire to do right. But they find themselves doing wrong. I'm standing in the gap. I'm mediating. I'm advocating. I'm standing on their behalf. And look God. Look at the sacrifice. It's me. Look at my nails. Look at the prints on my feet. And the side. I'm the atoning sacrifice for their sin. And I want to tell you, my dear friends, when God sees those marks, when God looks upon his son, his wrath, is turned away from you. Hallelujah. When God looks at you and you know that you've sinned, you know that you're not righteous, you know that you're not holy, but when God looks upon his son, every time he does, he turns his wrath away from you and replaces it with love, peace, joy, acceptance. He places it with his goodness, his grace, his kindness. He comes and he embraces you because Jesus stands as your advocate. Praise be to God. Our society has got it all wrong. As Grant said in his prayer, we have changed the boundaries. 
We have pushed them all the way out and say, we want to live over here. But God turns around and says, no, no, no. Do not say that you have not sinned because all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Do not say that your heart is not wicked for the heart is wicked above all things and desperately wicked, says God. Do not even say that. But come to me and I will be your advocate and I will stand in the courtroom of God and I will plead your case. And every time I plead, says Jesus, I have never lost one case. I never lost one soul. Every case, the judge has said acquitted, not guilty, free to go. Hallelujah. And that could be you this morning. If you come to him in that right way, bowing down before God, and saying, oh God, just as I am, without a plea, but that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, died for me let's pray oh God what can we say we have an advocate with the father we have one who speaks to you on our defense what can we say Lord why do we want to live in sin why do we want to live as our society is living? Why do we want to go the way everyone else is going when we have one who stands before your presence and speaks to you about us? Thank you, Lord. May today, may today there will be people here who will draw close to you because of what you have done in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Also, there's a literature for young people as well on the table too.